The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. start this week in Tibet. I've told you about my time there before. The bus crash on the highest road in the world, the hitchhiking on the truck, and Madame Bovary. I've visited the holiest place I've ever seen, a remote mountain called Mount Kailas. I walked around the mountain amid saints and pilgrims and little old ladies with yaks. And I ascended to the lofty heights where rainbows drift along like clouds. And then I started to come back down to earth. Magical lakes, temples, and clean and rarefied air. I'm not a big drug taker, but you don't need to be if you've been to Tibet. You can have flashbacks just as vivid and mind-bending as anything that comes from chemicals. It's spiritual LSD. This part of the story is when I was in that descent, somehow I needed to get to Nepal. And I'd been skirting the law and the Chinese army for a while. I was out of books, low on supplies, and I still needed to cross the Great Tibetan Plain, heading back east to the Friendship Highway. I met up with a few fellow travelers, Three of these were Americans and were highly annoying. One was British. He was a hard case, a scruffy-looking man, strong but lean as we all were in Tibet on our diet of Tibetan barley and butter tea and pebbles of hardened yak cheese with some army biscuits packed with survivalist nutrients somewhere in there. We managed to get a spot in the car, the five of us, an actual car. No more riding on the backs of trucks for us. We piled in. We could have all fit in the back seat, crowded in there, but one of the Americans insisted on sitting up front, which was a bad sign. Up there with the driver and his friend. Then, he insisted on playing his music, which he'd brought on a cassette tape. That was worse. The Chinese driver and his partner were quiet for hours. And the next morning, after a night we spent in a cold guest house with no roof and a yak dung fire right there in the middle of the floor, we travelers awoke to the sound of our ride pulling away without us. The woman who was traveling with us burst into tears. I felt like doing the same. The two other Americans blamed the one with the cassette tape. We hadn't even liked that music. What had made him think they would? 
and in all of the chaos and acrimony and genuine fear. The awareness that we were stranded on this Tibetan plateau with no ride and dwindling food. The British man, the hard case, came to me. Let's get out of here, he said. And we walked up the road, away from the three Americans, heading out into nowhere. Eventually, we made it to a path. There were no roads. Once you get out of town, just tracks. We made it to a set of these tracks and settled in, hoping a car or a truck would drive by to pick us up. And finally, one did. We were not inside this time. We had no heat. It was a small pickup truck with no back seat. They offered us a spot in the flatbed trunk. There, among the barrels and other supplies, we could bundle up in our sleeping bags and we'd sit all the way forward, huddled against the cab to try to avoid the worst of the wind. We had hundreds of miles to go. I wasn't sure we could do it. It was hours, 12 hours or more, before we would stop for the night. We might freeze. I didn't think we'd freeze to death. But I thought maybe the boredom and the bouncing and the cold might all combine to make us lose our hold on our sanity. And the lack of oxygen in the air would contribute... And what if this guy and I didn't get along? Well, what choice did we have? As we were starting, this guy, whose name was Ross, pulled out a bottle of brandy that he'd been carrying in his backpack. Here we go, he said, taking a slug and handing the bottle to me. And I knew I was in good hands. He was a hard, gruff guy, but he had this adventurous side, and that was just what I needed. And as we were riding, he said, I saw you were reading something. What was it? I had to confess that it was Proust. I was a little ashamed couldn't talk about Proust without sounding pretentious, and I didn't want to be pretentious in front of him, not this guy. I tried not to be pretentious, ever, but in front of a hard-boiled stranger I was about to spend an entire day with in difficult circumstances. Starting out, coming across like some kind of literary dandy seemed like a bad idea. So I answered a few of his questions. Then he said, what's your favorite novel? It was a difficult question. I wanted to answer something that wouldn't drive some kind of wedge between us. I'd been through this before. With those clowns who insisted that I must be a Fitzgerald person while they're a Hemingway person. I knew what they were saying. I'm a man. You're a girl. That was the subtext to all of it. Let me give you a quick parenthetical. Months later, I saw Ross in London. 
we were connected by then in this deep way because we'd been through so much together in such a short amount of time, life-changing experiences for each of us. Back here in civilization, we could see our differences. He was a tough guy. I was bookish, a reader. But I knew he was more sensitive, and he knew, maybe, that I had some strength. Anyway, Ross and I went to a pub in London. We had a few pints. It was crowded and noisy. A game was on. Soccer, a.k.a. football, a match. England was playing Wales. The place was getting raucous, and Ross started to get into the game, and suddenly, Wales scored. The place was silent, and one man yelled out, just one man, All right! <laughs> Yay! The rest of the room was silent. It was awkward. One fan of whales in that place, and I looked at Ross, and I said, half-joking, If Wales wins, is there going to be trouble? And Ross looked around very seriously. Then he looked back at me and said, Keep your bottle. This was a tough guy living a rough and tumble life. We were both adventurers in Tibet, but back in civilization, we had different levels of strength and aggression. I was a lover, not a fighter. <laughs> anyway, let's get back to the truck. There we are, bouncing along. I'd had to stumble through a discussion of Proust, which he'd never read, and I assumed never would in a million years. He asked me my favorite novel. Now I was on better ground. The end of the affair, I said. It was a harmless, inoffensive choice. Graham Greene has a wide appeal. Assuming Ross had heard of it, I could stand behind it. He wouldn't roll his eyes, even if Ross was more of a man's man than I would ever be. He nodded. What's yours? I asked. Do you have a favorite novel, Ross? Here's where I thought I'd hear about Martin Amos. It was popular at the time. Some Julian Barnes, maybe. Maybe Hemingway. Maybe Kerouac. Maybe William S. Burroughs. Or maybe Douglas Adams or Tolkien or something like that. And instead, Ross took another slug of brandy, looked off into the distant Tibetan horizon, and said, Middlemarch. Middlemarch. It was all he said. And all he needed to say. We'll take a look at Middlemarch, at this remarkable novel, and its remarkable author, Mary Ann Evans, known to the world as George Eliot, today on the History of Literature. <laughs> Okay, here we go. 
Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Jack Wilson. Middle March. You can imagine that as soon as I got to Kathmandu, I went screaming toward the used bookstore and picked up a copy. Yes, they had it. Lucky me, I felt like I'd hit the lottery. I had read George Eliot before, Adam Bede, and The Mill on the Floss. Those were my appetizers. Middle March was my main course. Also, a lot of banana pancakes <laughs> as I tried to regain my strength there in Kathmandu. Middlemarch has that role in English literature as a main course. It's a centerpiece for a certain kind of novel. If you set aside Ulysses and the Modernist Project and you go back to the Victorian novelists, the amazing 19th century, defined broadly, which gave us Jane Austen and the Brontes and Dickens and Thackeray and Trollope throw in some Americans, Hawthorne, Henry James. This was a period of amazing novels being written in English and also in Russian and French, of course. It was the age of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Victor Hugo and Flaubert. But let's stick to English. We have Great Expectations and Vanity Fair, and at the very end we get Thomas Hardy. Withering Heights is in there, and Jane Eyre, and Pride and Prejudice. These are great, great books. Novels are as big on the literary landscape as the massive dinosaurs roaming the earth eons ago. And among all these giants, there stands Middlemarch. Might not be the best novel or your favorite. It's hard to top Tolstoy, unless you come at him sideways like Dostoevsky. Middlemarch is Tolstoyan. But it is a worthy, worthy entry. It belongs in the conversation of greatest novels of all time. It blew me away there in Nepal, and it still has that power. Virginia Woolf said, It's, quote, one of the few English novels written for grown-ups. She said that George Eliot taught us the characters could think as well as feel, and that literature never was the same. Who was this author, Mary Ann Evans? How did she come to write this glorious masterpiece, and what was she trying to do? We'll have all that today. But first, let's hear an email from one of our listeners. This is from listener Savannah. Jack, she writes, it's so funny. Even as I am writing the sentence, I hear it read in your voice. This just goes to say how much I listen to the podcast. I'm currently a freshman at university going into college. Everyone in my family was under the impression that I was on the pathway to becoming an engineer. But boy, did I prank them <laughs> when I was admitted into the English department. <laughs> oh, Savannah, I hope you didn't prank yourself. <laughs> Shouldn't say that. I'm strongly supportive of the English department. Served me very well. In any case, let's get back to the email. On their part, it was not the best surprise they have received, and that fact is often made known to me quite bluntly. You know, Savannah, they're afraid. That's all it is. Engineer, that's so practical. That's so practical. English, not always as practical, but it can be. And you are stretching your mind. Anyway, let me read the email instead of all this commentary on it. At times, says Savannah, it causes me to question if I'm doing the right thing. When I'm in classes, it feels so right, 
But then sometimes in the darkest hour of the night, when I really should be getting all the shut-eye I can, I am kept up by the whispers swelling in my head, telling me that I should just put my big... <laughs> that I should just put on my big girl pants, suck it up, and try to convince myself that I would be happy talking about fluid dynamics the rest of my life. But then I listen to your podcast. I listen and listen and listen to your podcast. I listen to it while sweeping my dorm room, getting ready for my way-too-early class and waiting for my coffee order. It keeps me company when I am scared of getting run over by a biker in the overflowing university pathways. It holds my hand while on my way to my next literature class, keeping me in my little heaven until safely in the throes of class discussion on George Eliot's Ties to Phrenology. Your podcast grounds me back to home. It reminds me of how good it feels to learn about literature. It staples and glues in the joyous feeling of what it means to learn about what you love. Someone really has to love literature to listen to a History of Literature podcast, right? <laughs> Indeed. I guess someone really has to love literature to make a History of Literature podcast, and I must say, that puts me in good company. Yours truly, Savannah. Oh, Savannah, what a wonderful email with its little foreshadowing of George Eliot, phrenology. Yes, George Eliot studied the bumps on the skull, which is an interesting footnote. But the main text is the way she studied the bumps inside the skull. She is one of the most psychologically astute observers you will ever find in a novelist. We don't read her for humor, although she maybe doesn't get enough credit for being as humorous and playful as she is. We read her for her descriptions of society, especially of country life, her engagement with the intellectual ideas of her day, and her deep psychological insights. Before we get to that, though, I just wanted to say a note to Savannah. I do think you're doing the right thing. I think you're happier studying literature than fluid dynamics, and my hope is that things will work out for you, Savannah. Keep going. Follow your heart, let your passions guide you, and keep literature close at hand. Back to George Eliot. Listen to this passage where a woman has learned that her husband, a wealthy banker, is not what he had seemed to be. I won't spoil the reasons for this, and in fact... I don't know that the reasons matter. What matters here is the psychological insight into the two of them. This is a great George Eliot strength. This isn't Dickens, where the characters are well-defined, broadly defined, even a heightened version of reality. Character is brave and acts bravely or small-minded and acts in some petty way. A Dickens character might be hypocritical, but the hypocrisy is so recognizable and blatant and the character himself so blissfully unaware, so devoted to his nature, that the author and reader wink at one another and agree that the character is ultimately hypocritical, but that's a human feature, writ large in this case. And in the end, we're sort of amused and charmed by the hypocrisy. We're in it together with Dickens. We're sharing a laugh together. Eliot's different. Eliot's is not a wink but a stare. 
the author staring at the subject, finding the subtleties, noticing how they behave, and then layering these details onto the page so that we're seeing something special too. You don't get the sense of an energetic pal telling you one of the thousands of stories he knows, which is what Dickens is like, or the sense of a sharp, brilliant mind lifting an eyebrow and barely suppressing a smile, which is how I read Jane Austen. This is a deep soul engaged in a deep project. The more George Eliot looks, the deeper things get. No wonder that Henry James fell in love with her. He must have seen himself, like Narcissus, staring at his reflection in what was actually a very wide, very broad, very deep river. On to the passage. But first, let's take a quick break. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor. And they're delicious, ready to eat meals. These things are amazing. Chef crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup. And you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com slash literature50 to get 50% off. Hey, grown-ups! the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. This comes from Middlemarch. As I mentioned, it's a woman who has just discovered that her husband was not what he had seemed to be. She locked herself in her room. She needed time to get used to her maimed consciousness, her poor lopped life, before she could walk steadily to the place allotted her. A new, 
searching light had fallen on her husband's character, and she could not judge him leniently. The twenty years in which she had believed in him and venerated him by virtue of his concealments came back with particulars that made them seem an odious deceit. He had married her with that bad past life hidden behind him, and she had no faith left to protest his innocence of the worst that was imputed to him. Her honest, ostentatious nature made the sharing of a merited dishonor as bitter as it could be to any mortal. But this imperfectly taught woman, whose phrases and habits were an odd patchwork, had a loyal spirit within her. The man whose prosperity she had shared through nearly half a life, and who had unvaryingly cherished her, now that punishment had befallen him, it was not possible to her in any sense to forsake him. There is a forsaking which still sits at the same board and lies on the same couch with the forsaken soul, withering it the more by unloving proximity. She knew, when she locked her door, that she should unlock it, ready to go down to her unhappy husband and espouse his sorrow, and say of his guilt, I will mourn and not reproach. But she needed time to gather up her strength. She needed to sob out her farewell to all the gladness and pride of her life. When she had resolved to go down, she prepared herself by some little acts which might seem more f mere folly to a hard onlooker. They were her way of expressing to all spectators, visible or invisible, that she had begun a new life, in which she embraced humiliation. She took off all her ornaments and put on a plain black gown, and instead of wearing her much-adorned cap and large bows of hair, she brushed her hair down and put on a plain bonnet cap, which made her look suddenly like an early Methodist. Bulstrode, who knew that his wife had been out and had come in saying that she was not well, had spent the time in an agitation equal to hers. He had looked forward to her learning the truth from others and had acquiesced in that probability as something easier to him than any confession. But now that he imagined the moment of her knowledge come, he awaited the result in anguish. His daughters had been obliged to consent to leave him, and though he had allowed some food to be brought to him, he had not touched it. He felt himself perishing slowly in unpitied misery. Perhaps he should never see his wife's face with affection in it again. And if he turned to God, there seemed to be no answer but the pressure of retribution. It was eight o'clock in the evening before the door opened and his wife entered. He dared not look up at her. He sat with his eyes bent down, and as she went towards him, she thought he looked smaller. He seemed so withered and shrunken. A movement of new compassion and old tenderness went through her like a great wave, and putting one hand on his, which rested on the arm of the chair, and the other on his shoulder, she said, solemnly but kindly, Look up, Nicholas. He raised his eyes with a little start and looked at her, half amazed for a moment, her pale face, her changed morning dress, the trembling about her mouth, all said, I know. And her hands and eyes rested gently on him. 
he burst out crying, and they cried together, she sitting at his side. They could not yet speak to each other of the shame which she was bearing with him, or of the axe which had brought it down on them. His confession was silent, and her promise of faithfulness was silent. Open-minded as she was, she nevertheless shrank from the words which would have expressed their mutual consciousness, as she would have shrunk from flakes of fire. She could not say, How much is only slander and false suspicion? And he did not say, I am innocent. That's from Middlemarch. That's about as good as writing gets, I think. Elliot did have an interest in phrenology, as Savannah mentioned, so much so that she had a cast taken of her head. Her head was giant, as it turned out. Specialists who later saw the cast insisted it must be from a man. Something suitable in that, I think. She used a male name for her gnome de plume, taken from her lover's name, George Luz. We're jumping all over now, but that's okay. We'll fill in the gaps later. Here's another reason why the male-female question is relevant. She wrote a very famous essay criticizing the women novelists of her day. It was called Silly Novels by Lady Novelists. She objected to the plots, which tended to be frothy, and then ending in some marriage, and the cliched characters and the general approach to the world that those novels took. Not only were they irritating to read, they had noxious effects, undermining the cause of women's education, in George Eliot's view. The characters were often educated in these silly novels, but the women weren't curious or wrestling with ideas. Their education made them smug and self-satisfied, and they knew exactly what they wanted, and they ended up marrying men they adored. Ho-hum. So why educate women if it only makes them tedious? That was the question Eliot worried that people would ask upon reading these silly novels. And anyway, the world doesn't work like that, not for a group of people, not for anyone. The world is stickier, wilder, more full of passions of the heart and soul and mind. It's not surprising that Eliot made an exception for Charlotte Bronte and Elizabeth Gaskell, whom she did not count as silly lady novelists at all. And it's not surprising that she herself wrote very serious books when it came time to write them, books that engaged with the world in a kind of omnivorous way taking as their subject whatever was relevant to engage with. Society, the economy, religion, philosophy, love, marriage, ideas, guilt, shame, education, all of this is covered, and more. But before we get to who Marianne Evans was, let's spend just a minute more on how she looked. One of her fellow phrenologist advocates was the social reformer Charles Bray, who said about her, quote, I consider her the most delightful companion I have ever known. She knew everything. She had little self-assertion. Her aim was always to show her friends off to the best advantage, not herself. She would polish up their witticisms and give the credit to them. End quote. Isn't that good? I said we're going to talk about her appearance. I talked about her personality. 
I hate that we have to talk about her appearance, but like Byron, the physical seems to have mattered. Wasn't just her large head that was noteworthy. She was famously plain, self-described as ugly, and yet men fell in love with her throughout her life. Here's how Henry James described her appearance and her charms. She is, he wrote, quote, magnificently ugly, deliciously hideous, horse-faced, with a vast pendulous nose, a low forehead, bad teeth. And that was just for starters. But then he added, now, this is quote, quote, now in this vast ugliness resides a most powerful beauty, which in a very few minutes steals forth and charms the mind so that you end as I ended in falling in love with her. End quote. Let's find out more about the life of Marianne Evans from her childhood to her masterpieces after this. Evans was born in November of 1819, two years after Jane Austen died at the age of 41. Charles Dickens had been born seven years earlier in 1812. The three Brontes were all born almost at the same time as George Eliot, 1816 to 1820, though they published their works at a younger age than she did. Marian Evans did not become George Eliot until she was 37. She started those 37 years in rural England where her father managed an estate for a wealthy family. She went to school learning French and Italian and other subjects and had a deep immersion in religious education. She herself was religious, growing increasingly devout until she met some free thinkers in her early 20s. At age 22, she told her father she could no longer go to church, which led to a row that lasted for months Finally, they agreed that she would go to church and behave pleasantly, which satisfied him, and she would be free to think what he, what she wanted. <laughs> I almost said what he wanted. That was not how it worked. She would go to church and act like she was religious, but inside she could think whatever she wanted. Something that rings very familiar to me about this. On the one hand, even the most pious believers have to accept that if you don't believe, you don't believe. You can't force someone to change their minds. This isn't the Inquisition anymore. You can only change their behavior. On the one hand, you can imagine that a big part of her father's objections was probably that he felt like a failure. That religion was important to him, and here was his daughter. He felt like he'd be ostracized. For her free-thinking ways, he didn't want to be ashamed of his daughter for not being a believer like he was. Maybe he was terrified. She was headed to a bad place. She didn't want to put him through all that. Her mother had died years earlier. So Marianne lived with him going to church until he died in 1847. By now she was 27 years old, about to turn 28, and she fell in with another group of intellectuals, sort of, and she'd hang around these men reading German and Greek and going for long walks, where they would discuss things like 
theology. With one such interlocutor, who was himself writing a book that was attempting to remove supernatural elements from religion, a book he never finished and maybe was not as serious as he claimed. With this man, the long walks earned the jealousy of his wife, who forced Marianne to leave. She was humiliated by this, but she went to Geneva, where she made more friends, and a year or so later she was in London, living on the small sum left to her by her father and her own resourcefulness as a freelance writer. This went poorly once again. She lived as a boarder with a friend of hers named John Chapman, a man about town who was having an affair with the governess of his children. Both the governess and the wife grew jealous of Marianne, who had that attractiveness that Henry James described, an attraction of the mind. Even though there's no evidence that she ever had an affair with Chapman, the wife and mistress ousted her from the house, and she returned to Coventry, the town where she'd been living with her father, in tears, humiliated. Within a few months, her fortune changed. Chapman bought the Westminster Review, and Marianne returned to London to be one of its editors. By now, she was 35, just coming into her own intellectually, and as the journal flourished, thanks in no small part to her influence, she met some key authors and social reformers of the period. One of these was Herbert Spencer, who became a friend and confidant. He introduced her to George Henry Lewes, a journalist who was yet another married man. This one, though had a broken marriage with a wife who had cheated on him and had even born a son with another man. This was all secret from society, known to him, of course, but secret to the world. Because of the rules of the day, Luz couldn't get a divorce. Instead, he felt free to have an affair, and he and Marianne Evans lived together openly. They traveled to Germany together. They were essentially married, though not legally, and had a happy relationship for the next 20 or so years, until he died in 1878. Her intellectual side was in full flower now, as Marianne translated works like Feuerbach's Essence of Christianity and Spinoza's Ethics. Luz was writing a biography of Goethe. He was struggling to support his three sons and four children that his former wife had had with her lover, all of whom were his responsibility because of the divorce laws, seven kids on a freelance writer's income. Not easy. Nor was it easy for he and Marianne to endure the chatter that it was Luz's wife, Agnes, who was the aggrieved party since her husband had run off with Evans, a strong-minded woman, as she was called. Against this backdrop... Marianne Evans became George Eliot and published her first sketches collected together in a work called Scenes of Clerical Life, and then her first long novel, Adam Bede. Adam Bede was quickly followed by The Mill on the Floss. The books were popular and successful. They brought her fame and fortune. These took place in the country, drawing upon her recollections from childhood they have good humor and sound moral judgment and are starting to point the way toward her excellent later work, Middlemarch, which exhibits acute psychological subtlety. She was writing as George Eliot now in tribute to Luz, 
That's how she got the name George, but also to distinguish herself from those silly novels by those lady novelists. And in the end, she became the best novelist, the best writer ever to be named George. Nobody else is even close. Well, a few people are close. She would have also been the best Mary Ann. (laughs) So who knows what my point is? Sometimes points are beside the point. Actually, let's stick to this for a minute. Let's set aside George Saunders, whose grade is still being determined. The next best writer named George is George Orwell, whose real name was Eric. It's Marianne and Eric are the two Georges we have. After that, there's really no one else except for George Sand, I think, whose real name was Amantine. (laughs) You could say that the three best writers named George, none of them was named George, and two of them weren't even men. Oh, except I'm forgetting a big one. Another another one whose name is George, but who we never call George. What a strange first name George is. What a curiosity for literature to have this name. The people who actually have the name want to be called something else, and the ones who we call George aren't actually named that. What is it about that name? Let's jump into the rabbit hole. Let's name the top authors named George of all time. Should we do this? Why not? Let's count backwards. George Saunders, we'll we'll put him at number six. He's on the outside of the top five, looking in. Almost there. Good luck, George. Keep going. Keep writing. (laughs) I know he's a fan of the show, so it pains me to say it. I can't put him higher than number six. Maybe he can come on and defend his position. He's he's the greatest living writer named George. How about that? Not bad, George. I hope I'm not forgetting someone in there. Number five, we'll say is George Herbert. Oh, wait. Wait, 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 wait. I've got, I forgot a few here. We've got George Bernard Shaw. We've got to get to Saunders drops to seven. And damn it, if I'm counting George Sand, who wrote in French, I probably have to count George Simenon, who wrote 500 books, including the Magre books. Going to have to give him the nod over Saunders, too. So here we go. George Saunders, you're number eight. Greatest living George. Be proud of that. George Herbert comes in at number seven. Probably a little low, but there you have it. Poets always lose out, don't they? They never get the prizes. Until we get to the name William. Maybe they'll dominate then. George Simenone we'll put at number six. George Bernard Shaw makes the top five. George Sand, congratulations. In the top four. You could have been number one in your category if you'd stuck to Amantine, Lucille, Aurore. But those are the breaks you chose to play in this sandbox with the big kids. Number three is George Orwell. It's a pretty heavy hitter to come in at number three. One of my all-time favorites. It's killing me. You might be in suspense now. There are two Georges who are better than George Orwell. George Eliot, of course. But who else? Number two is. <laughs> I'm kind of excited. Should we have a drum roll? <laughs> Let's 
do a drum roll for number two. The number two writer named George. Did I screw up the timing on that? The number two writer named George of all time is... George Gordon. Lord Byron. What a sneaky George that is. George Gordon. His last name kind of swallows up the first name, and then Lord Byron comes in and demolishes it all. Like a huge wave crashing on the beach. We just call him Byron. Byron. Keats. Byron. Shelley. John. George. Percy. Much better as Keats, Byron, and Shelley. Wow. George Gordon. Kind of a great name. Very different from Lord Byron. Even better. More suitable. And number one is George Eliot. Marianne Evans, which sounds like the name of a 1940s Hollywood character, right? A wife, a small towner, a sweetheart. She could get married to Jimmy Stewart. Marianne Evans. Elliot seems never to have liked the name Marianne. She never seemed comfortable with it. She spelled it as two words, as one word, with an E, without an E, and as Marion, M-A-R-I-O-N. She was ready to shed the whole thing and become George, which of course she did for several reasons, including the ones we've mentioned. So there we have it. Great Georges. We didn't count Elizabeth George. Not eligible. Surname. And we didn't count... George R.R. Martin, the Game of Thrones guy. My apologies to him and any others we've forgotten. Let's do George Eliot's masterpieces. If you were starting out now with George Eliot, where would you begin? If you're trying to complete your reading of George Eliot, what should be on your list? I'm going to give you five options. You can start with any of these five. All five are worth reading. And then if you're in a deep dive frame of mind, you can jump to a couple of Eliot's others, Be My Guest. Here are the five. Adam Bede, The Mill on the Floss, Silas Marner, Middlemarch, and Daniel Deronda. What is good about each of these five? Well, Adam Bede was, I think, her first great novel. It's what she called, quote, a country story full of the breath of cows and the scent of hay, end quote. The novel takes place in a fictional place called Hay Slope, a small rural community, tight-knit. Bede is a carpenter who's in love with an unmarried woman who bears a child by another man. There are other characters, too. We follow four of them around. It's a love rectangle. And there's a murder, or maybe it's a death, with someone accused of murder, I should say, with a trial. It's a riveting book, and it was very popular in its day. Outstanding debut. Highly praised for its moral sympathy. Charles Dickens appreciated the setting, which he thought was amazingly well-rendered, and he said, quote, The whole country life that the story is set in is so real and so droll and genuine and yet so selected and polished by art that I, ca- that I cannot praise it enough. End quote. A reviewer named Anne Mosley said, Hey, it's a great novel. And was probably written by a woman. Hmm. The Mill on the Floss came next. This might be my secret favorite. I love this book. It's Maggie Tulliver trying to adapt to her provincial world. 
and her brother Tom, who forbids her from seeing the one friend who appreciates her for her vivid mind and active imagination. Why does he do that? Because of his sense of family honor. The two have a bond, though, Maggie and Tom. His siblings, even though, in a way, he's killing her. There's an ending I won't spoil for you, but it's a great book. Then comes Silas Marner. This is a short one, the shortest of the five by far. It might be the place to start if you're looking to dip your toes in the George Eliot waters. Here's a guy, Silas Marner, who works as a weaver and loves only his gold. You could say that this is Eliot starting to be uneasy with her own wealth. Her new success as a writer in the midst of some shame and guilt and the fallout from her entanglements with different paramours, including George Henry Lewis. But Silas Marner finds some redemption after he's robbed, and he ends up starting to take care of an abandoned baby girl. Elliot, at this point, had some kids, too, the ones she inherited, so to speak, as part of her connection with George Lewis. Middlemarch is next. Originally, it was two novels, neither of which were fully complete, not quite working, until Elliot realized that they complemented one another and would work better together. Middlemarch is the name of the town, and the book itself covers every class of society in the town, the landed gentry, the clergy, the manufacturers, the professionals, the farmers, the laborers, and we have idealists like Dorothea Brooke and Tertius Lydgate, who fall into disastrous marriages. Dorothea marries a pompous scholar who's too old for her, and she falls in love instead with his younger cousin. Her husband, meanwhile, does everything he can to block the two of them from getting together, even after his death. Lydgate, meanwhile, on the other hand, has chosen a woman named Rosamond Vincy, whom he likes for being polished and refined and docile, Those are the qualities he thinks would make a good spouse. But she's also shallow. She doesn't realize that he's poor, as poor as he is. She constantly spends more than she should, and she ruins him. There are many more twists and turns in this book. But the key here is we avoid the happy ending, the nice wrap-ups, which readers were addicted to then, and frankly, based on what we see in Hollywood, probably still are. But Middlemarch is about the realities of marriage, the realities of the world. It's the book for grown-up people. It's bleak, but not always. It is a penetrating book. It looks at you, even as you look at it. Our last book, Daniel Deronda, takes on Victorian anti-Semitism. We see a poor Jewish girl, Myra Cohen, contrasted with the wealthier Gwendolyn Harleth, who marries for money. Another disastrous choice. The title character, Deronda, discovers he's Jewish and starts to identify more and more with the religion, which ends up turning him into a kind of Moses figure headed toward the promised land. But the real achievement in this novel is with the unhappy princess Gwendolyn. Elliot gets this right, and it's maybe her best portrait of a character in any of her books, which is saying a lot. Those are the top five. They're all great. Take your pick. And now, let's give the last word, or several words, actually, to Virginia Woolf, 
a great fan of George Eliot. Eliot was one of her spiritual predecessors. I love her respect for Eliot because it would have been easy for Wolf to throw Eliot overboard, as younger generations so often do. They cast them aside, whether it's because of the anxiety of influence or whatever. They need to carve out their own territory. I'm a modern. Hear me roar. Look at what I do. Look back on those quaint little writers who came before me. They didn't get it. But Wolf didn't do that. She loved Elliot. She was grateful toward her. And here she is talking about Elliot and how she wrote herself into her novels. That's what's in this little paragraph. It was not always an easy fit. Sometimes the Elliot-like characters made the novels less likable. But it was honest, and it was generous, and it demonstrated the power of her art. We think sometimes it might be the opposite, right? That writing about yourself is easy, and inventing a character is harder, more challenging, a greater sign of artistry to step into someone else's shoes. But if you're digging deep and taking a hard look at yourself, it might be the more revealing path to take. Not in a kind of, hey, boy, it's honest to talk about what a lousy person I am, how brave that is to do. Sometimes we overcredit that when the writer is a scumbag and revels in it. We we, we say... Oh, how brave, how courageous. Let me let Wolf explain it, what's going on here. This is a beautiful paragraph, and there's a surprise twist in it, one that I had completely forgotten, which is going to wrap up this whole episode. Hmm. Hmm. It's one of those happy accidents that makes me think the wheels of fate are spinning around and sometimes everything comes up cherries. The music of the spheres is playing a nice harmony today. Lucky us. Here's Wolf talking about Elliot. Quote, But in the midst of all this tolerance and sympathy, there are, even in the early books, moments of greater stress. Her humor has shown itself broad enough to cover a wide range of fools and failures, mothers and children, dogs and flourishing midland fields, farmers, sagacious or fuddled over their ale, horse dealers, innkeepers, curates, and carpenters. Over them all broods a certain romance, the only romance that George Eliot allowed herself, the romance of the past. The books are astonishingly readable and have no trace of pomposity or pretense. But to the reader who holds a large stretch of her early work in view, it will become obvious that the mist of recollection gradually withdraws. It is not that her power diminishes, for, to our thinking, it is at its highest in the mature Middlemarch, the magnificent book, which with all its imperfections, is one of the few English novels written for grown-up people. But the world of fields and farms no longer contents her. In real life, she had sought her fortunes elsewhere, and though to look back into the past was calming and consoling, there are, even in the early works, traces of that troubled spirit, that exacting and questioning and baffled presence who was George Eliot herself. 
In Adam Bede, there is a hint of her in Dinah. She shows herself far more openly and completely in Maggie in The Mill on the Floss. She is Janet in Janet's Repentance, and Romola and Dorothea seeking wisdom and finding one scarcely knows what in marriage with Ladislaw. Those who fall foul of George Eliot do so, we incline to think, on account of her heroines, and with good reason. For there is no doubt that they bring out the worst of her, lead her into difficult places, make her self-conscious, didactic, and occasionally vulgar. Yet if you could delete the whole sisterhood, you would leave a much smaller and a much inferior world albeit a world of greater artistic perfection and far superior jollity and comfort, in accounting for her failure, in so far as it was a failure, one recollects that she never wrote a story until she was thirty-seven, and that by the time she was thirty-seven she had come to think of herself with a mixture of pain and something like resentment. For long she preferred not to think of herself at all, Then, when the first flush of creative energy was exhausted and self-confidence had come to her, she wrote more and more from the personal standpoint. But she did so without the unhesitating abandonment of the young. Her self-consciousness is always marked when her heroines say what she herself would have said. She disguised them in every possible way. She granted them beauty and wealth into the bargain, she invented, more improbably, a taste for brandy. But the disconcerting and stimulating fact remained that she was compelled by the very power of her genius to step forth in person upon the quiet, bucolic scene. End quote. A taste for brandy. A taste for brandy, just like my man Ross, sitting there on the back of that bouncing truck as we warmed our lungs with the magical elixir. Ross shared that with George Eliot, this taste for brandy, and he shared with me a taste for George Eliot. We survived that trip, of course, and we went on to tackle more of life, sometimes out there in the world, and sometimes... We did our tackling at home, under the covers, under a reading lamp, with a huge novel on our laps. I haven't seen Ross for a couple of decades, but it's okay. We're connected. We'll always have Tibet in common. And we'll always have Middlemarch. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Savannah for her email today. And to my old friend Ross, to whom I am tipping my little glass of brandy right now. And of course, to Marianne Evans, a.k.a. George Eliot, the greatest of all Georges, at least as a writer, maybe as a person. I'll give her my vote. Sorry, Mr. Washington. You did some great things, but some not so great things, too. But we try to avoid politics here on the History of Literature podcast. Here's what we don't avoid. Great books and friendship and camaraderie. 
we have all those things in abundance and gratitude, including my gratitude for all of you listeners, all of you patrons, patrons, and all of you out there reviewing and ranking and subscribing. Thank you, thank you, thank you, everyone. And my thanks to those who've just joined me today for the first time. Welcome. I hope you return, and there are a hundred and whatever shows in the archives. Go knock yourselves out. <laughs> I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>